This is a Balanced Brain Podcast with your hosts, Melanie Nicholson and Sean Clift. Hi, welcome to the Balanced Brain Podcast. I'm Melanie Nicholson and my co-presenter is Sean Clift. And we have just recently started this podcast and I've already done an episode with Sean where I was interviewed by him about... uh, my traumatic brain injury, my accident, and the tables have turned today, and now I'm interviewing Sean. Hmm. So Sean, welcome to yes. this episode. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> That's all good. Um, just to give a bit of background, we actually recorded a podcast two years ago. I think was it two years ago? Was two years ago. Wow. Um, and we were talking specifically about men's well-being at the time, yep. and uh, we were talking about. Lots of I've been running workshops and and, and looking at um, looking at men's health issues with clients. And what came out in that podcast was your own personal story around some of the mental health challenges that you were having at the time. Yeah. Um, but that's not where the podcast was meant to go. And I think there was some yeah we were there, we were a little bit surprised about what came out of that. And that didn't ever go to air. Um, I think at that time yeah it was something that I'm not sure that you were fully wanting to discuss on that podcast no probably not yeah in in honesty yeah so that that has changed obviously we've decided to reinvigorate this new podcast series and with um yeah with a different mindset around discussing that so welcome sean thank you and can you tell us a bit about what your experience has been with your mental health journey and and probably compare it back to two years ago when we were kind of discussing and it wasn't really something that came up then. Yeah. Look, obviously this is a challenge for me because I never thought it had happened to me. Like most people who suffer from depression, I was the last person that me or anyone around me would have thought that I would have suffered from it. So it actually took a long time for me to, number one, even realise that I had a problem. Number two, to get any kind of help or talk about it. Number three, to admit it to anyone. And then to start to really work on it has been a long process. It's been a long journey. Um, At this point in time, to be honest with you, I feel heaps better. Do I feel good? Sometimes, sometimes more than not. Am I over it? Absolutely not. So it's an ongoing journey. But I just think that now I have a much better understanding of it. Um, I'm not as ashamed of it. So I'm more willing to talk about it. Yeah, great. So can you pinpoint a time over the last couple of years since we did that first podcast where what, what actually made you realize that well there's something not quite right or were there were specific feelings or situations where that came up for you where you finally had to to recognize the elephant in the room so to speak yeah well look i mean what happened was a, a, a series of events i guess and you know in my life you know i've had lots of things that have happened over over my life that have been bad you know challenges and there've been difficult times and there's been a, and periods of times where you're down about things. But at the, at, at, in those times, I always sort of thought, I never thought that that would last. I always thought, well, I, you know, all I need to do is just, just get things on track and once I get things on track, I'll be better. 
And to be honest with you, that's what happened. You know, I've been through redundancies. Um, I've been through a couple of redundancies in my life. Um, and, you know, at the time, it was, a, it was a bit of a time where I was down for a little while, but then sort of looked at them as an opportunity to do something new and change and reskill and, and look at it as a really optimistic way of doing something different. I always liked trying out different things and doing different jobs. Well, I, would, so. I would describe you as an extrovert optimist and that's how, you know, when I first met you 10 years ago, that, that's really the energy that you gave to me. And that's it, it's, it's interesting because we don't think of people generally with those personalities becoming depressed. So there's, there's actually, I think that is, is tougher when you identify as being the positive, outgoing, almost a party guy. I mean, you've been in bands and you, you've had a, a, a varied experience in the hospitality industry so those things are where you tend to have to be on your game extroverted and 10 years ago 15 years ago i would have totally agreed with you yeah i was extroverted i was confident i was a glass half full kind of guy i was always looking for the next challenge or the next project or the next opportunity or the next um you know next experience and um am i that kind of person now on the outside, probably, um, to a lot of people, but I think most people that are close to me now have probably seen a lot more of an introverted side to myself, and I've seen a lot more of an introverted part of myself, um, and that's that's been a real journey because I, I you know, like may, maybe that is what I am, <laughs> like yeah. you know, like. I don't know. We do and that's, that's, an what, I'm, world, that's what I'm trying to find out, I suppose. Yeah. So if you think back to when you were growing up and through school, is that something that you had identif- always identified with, being that outgoing, extroverted kid? Or were there moments when you can reflect back when you were a kid where you actually were quieter, more introverted? Yeah, look, when I was young, in primary school, I was quite introverted. And then I kind of came out of my shell and when I was around sort of 15 or 16. Um, and I wasn't sort of, a, you know, a party guy or anything like that. But, you know, I really enjoyed the social aspect of school. I wasn't the best student, but I loved school. And I got involved in everything. You know, like I, I was not a great sportsman, but I loved playing sports. I wasn't a, at that point in time in my life, I wasn't a great musician, but I just wanted to play music. So I just... Uh, joined the school band and 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 joined the school musical but didn't really have any talent at singing so I joined the crew you know what I mean like yeah. I just wanted to kind of be part of stuff and be part of it <coughs> and you know to be honest you know, I went to a, quite a big school big um, uh, Catholic boys school and you know it was uh, I, I ended up school captain and yeah. I was probably one of the non uh, first sort of non real academic school captains and I think that I was voted in to that job because, you know, I love hanging around with people and, and, you know, I had a very wide circle of friends. You know, I had friends that were rugby players and I had friends who were musicians and I had friends who were artists and I had friends who were right into academia. And I just wanted to branch out and meet as many people as I could. I, school, for me, was a fantastic experience. I, I really enjoyed it. Um. Yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with as a career-wise or anything like that, and and you know I ended up studying hospitality because I didn't get into uni. That's that's what it came down to. And I thought, well, I'll just study this for a little while, upgrade my school so I can go and study business because my dad does business and that's what I'll do. But I ended up 
working in the hotel industry after it and just loved it. And that was a fantastic period of my life. Um, I made some excellent friends. It was a really rewarding work, really hard work. Um, it was a, a really fun environment. It was a lot of social interaction. I really enjoyed that. So over that whole period of time, sort of my 20s and 30s was a, a real highlight of life. And, and you know, I, I, I had a real vigor for life. I had a real vigor for uh, an, an enthusiasm to, you know, to work up the corporate ladder and, and, and meet as many people as I could. And, and that connection with people has always been sort of the main driver for me, I guess. So up until, you know, up until that point, there, there'd be no way in the world I would have thought of depression, let alone thinking that I would get depression or that I would suffer it. Okay, so, so there's nothing in your 20s and 30s that where you had moments of melancholy where you look back and that, and that was actually a pattern, but it, but it doesn't sound like it was. It was actually something that really no, has come about from... Yeah, exactly. Like, I, mean, I, I, look, I, I mean, I had some challenges. Like I said, you know, when I was, uh, you know, just left school, my parents divorced. That was a challenging time. Um, I, I'm not saying that it was easy and that it wasn't, sad for mourning of that relationship but at the end of the day I was pretty much ready to move home anyway and start my life and my sister and I moved in together in Brisbane and um, you know eventually you know I reconciled with both my parents you know it was hard not to take sides during that time but I reconciled with them and saw that they were both really happy and really looked at it as a positive actually you know so you know I have a good relationship with you know my step-parents and um, good relationship with both of my parents. And um, so that was a hard time. But again, like I'm not saying that I, I never thought that it would stay hard. I knew yeah. that eventually we'll be okay. We'll be fine. Um, you know, and then I sort of put all my effort into my career in the hotels and the hotel I was working for sold and changed ownerships and changed branding. And I was made redundant. And I was a very, very hard worker. I put blood, sweat and tears into that role. Yeah. And that was a hard time. That was a very difficult time. And that was probably the closest that I can remember where I felt a sense of depression. And how long was that period for where you were done, like where, we, where you would, were without work? Well, not too long. You know, like I, I, I looked at that as an opportunity for change. I mean... What I was doing in the hotels, I worked, worked basically looked after the food and beverage department. I spent a long time working in the events part of the hotel, so weddings and conferences and, um, you know, corporate trade shows and things like that. So there was a lot of weekends, a lot of late nights. I, I think I worked 10 or 11 Christmas days in a row, 10 or 11 yeah. New Year's Eves in a row. It was a young man's game. Yeah. You know. Well, just going into that, then then you've had a massive change in, in the second half of your life after the age of 40 and going into your 40s and and you uh, had a child. Yeah, that was something that I'd always wanted to do. I always probably thought that I'd be a younger father, but so I'm 45 now and I'll have a five-year-old in a couple of months. So that's fatherhood has been uh, an incredible journey for me. Um when my daughter was born, 
or just before my daughter was born was probably the lowest that I was at. Right, okay. That was a very, very difficult time and I don't really want to talk about the specifics of it but it didn't end well and I was ba I basically lost that job um, and I had nothing then. And when things went really, really bad, my wife and I, we were both, we were both older, so, so my wife and I sort of met when my wife was 40 and I was 38 and we both wanted to have children and um, the doctor basically said to us, look, you know, you, can, you guys can try naturally, but with Carmen's age, you're better off doing IVF. Yep. So we did that and we, we were really lucky actually. We, we, um, we were successful on uh, IVF's a, a convoluted, you know, thing. Like it's not just you just try this and then this happens. So there's a process that goes on and then there's, if that doesn't work, you do a couple of things. But, and my wife would be able to tell you much more about that than me. But at the end of the day, we, we were pretty lucky. You know, we, yeah. we were given a low percentage and we had a beautiful girl. But in the lead up to that period, I was uh, unemployed. Um, I was totally in the wilderness, yeah. totally in the dark. Um, and there was a timeline ticking. Yeah. Okay. Hey, can so, you tell us what sort of fears came up around that time where you're unemployed, you're, you're trying for a, a baby? What, what were the feelings that were coming up at that time that you may not have been familiar with in, in your 20s and 30s when you were, were, were basically working in a very successful, happy roles? Well, in my 20s and 30s, if, I, if it had come to the period, in my late 20s and early 30s, if it had got to the period where I had a child on the way, it would have been a very exciting and joyous time because... You know, I was in a good place. I was successful. I mean, what 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 is perceived as successful? That's yeah. something really important that I want to, that I'd like to touch on because, you know, like I perceived that that was successful. You know, being in, in a management position or whatever. You know, yeah. and but at the period of time that my daughter was on her way, I was in a very very dark place. Yes. Yeah. And that came down to the sense that, you know, what kind of father was I going to be because I couldn't, I, I wasn't able to provide. What was, what was my wife going to do? You know, she was working and it was getting to the stage where she was not going to work. Yeah. And I, I was desperate and I was, um, had lost all of my confidence, all of, um, all of my um, um, joy, and there was a point where, in the months before Rosanna was born, that I had serious thoughts that she would be better off coming into the world without me. And so was that, that's obviously a really difficult time. Yep. And did you share that feeling or thought with anyone? Not, not, not for a while. Um, 
not for a long time, my wife knew that I wasn't well. I don't think she really realised how unwell I was, right? And um, then, you, you know, I, I kind of told her what what I was going through and what I was thinking and, yeah, that was probably the first time that I really sort of reached out to to anyone, I think. How did you seek assistance for that period of your life? I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't for a long time. Um, oh, it got to the stage where I was, I was very, very low. Mm. I couldn't really function normally at, at points. From the outside looking in, you probably would have thought that Sean's okay because you know you just sort of throw up that barrier and throw up on that mask and throw up that wall and you, you try and be friendly and you try and be polite to everyone and try and have a joke and try and have a laugh. But honestly, there was, it got to the stage where, yeah, I didn't think that I'd see my 40th birthday. That's for sure. There, I, I actually went on a camping trip on my own in the middle of winter. Yeah. I had no intention of coming back. Right. So, and that was just before Roseanne was yeah. born. Yep. And was other than your wife, were there other people around you that knew that's what was going on or did you have that facade? Oh, I had that facade totally. And then um, I did start to go to counselling at that point in time, which was helpful to a point. And then I started to reach out. Well, my wife sort of reached out to my family and said, you know, I don't know if you know, but, you know, your sons and your brother are in a is in a really bad way. And then so they sort of started to reach out to me and I felt more confident talking to them at points, but I never really told them the truth, in all honesty. It was just, yeah, I didn't really tell them that. I just kind of kept saying, oh, look, I'll be okay. Once I, once I get things on track, I just got to get things on track. And when I get things on track, I'll be okay. And, and um, then I started to reach out to some Closer friends, and I'm really lucky. I've got really great friends. Really good friends, yeah. We talk about your yeah. friends a lot. Huh? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you were one of them that I reached out to, really. And um, once I started to talk to friends, that was better, okay, because, um, you know, they would, um, they were great listeners. A lot, a lot of, a lot, some, some friends are really great listeners and they, they can sort of give you some good advice or just, just have a good chat to you. Other friends are really great at giving you a destruction. And that, that was really warranted at times too, to be honest. Like I know that that's a big thing to say, oh, males, they just they can't do anything and they just want to take you for a beer or whatever. But honestly, sometimes you just need that. Yeah, of course. You need that balance between the... Yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that starting to reach out to friends was when um, that I knew that, you know, that, that things weren't good. Yeah. And how did you come back from the camping trip, if that's what, where you got to in terms of your feelings? What what do you feel like got you through that camping trip and made you come home? Well, well, my my little girl on the way, that's, that's what did it. Like at the end of the day, like I just, I just knew I had to. Like I, I just thought that it wanted to be selfish. Like, and I, I've got, you know, I... 
I don't want to say that that's right because I don't think it's right, but I, I did feel like that at the time because I just felt like I, ha I had to, like, what, what, what sort of damage would that do before she's even here? <laughs> so, so I just had to drag myself out somehow. I just dragged myself out. Drag, it literally was dragging myself out of the tent and packing up the car and driving back to Brisbane and just thought, I just got to try. I got to try. So then tell us when your daughter came along, how did that change things? I know that can be a really challenging thing, particularly for men in that new role as father and, yep. and how that impacts on how you see yourself. And at the time you're already going through the identity of, you know, where, what am I doing in terms of employment and as a provider? Yep. So tell me about how, how that once your daughter came along, how, what phase were you in then? How did that move through that period of your life? Well, the, when Rosanna was born, when my daughter was born, that was, it was absolute joy for me. So, um, you know, my wife had a cesarean, so I don't know if people know what happens, but basically, you know, that, you know, they spend a little bit of time with their mum, but then they, you know, mum's got to get, you know, stitched up and, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a pretty big operation. So actually they, they give yeah, they the, the father the child. <laughs> And that then I knew that it didn't matter what else happened. That's now what I am. Yes. Right? That's what you are. That's the, the main thing that you are now is, is this. You're, you're this girl's father. Like all the other things that you've been just don't matter. <laughs> like, and, and, and I'm not saying that, that was a, it was a light bulb moment or a switch on like that, like, but... It was really like, okay, here we go. Like, this is it. And so, like, I call her my little angel because in a way she was, you know. And, you know, I know a lot of dads call their little kids little angels. But, like, when I say that to her, I really do think that she's my little angel because like, she came along and, and, you know, like really kind of gave me a new sense of focus, a new sense of purpose, a new sense of identity. And, you know what, there was one day, like, I spent – You know, to be honest, I got an, another job, and but I, I wasn't in a space to be able to work. Mm. Like I, I was so depressed and so um, completely scrambled that, like, I, I found it hard to focus on anything. Mm. And like at the end of the day, I just, I just needed a circuit breaker somehow. And it was a very challenging time because. You know, my wife wanted to be the person to stay at home and, and raise our child and, you know, I, I wanted to be the one who was out working and providing like the men yeah. should do yeah. and blah, 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 blah. That would have been ideal world. But at the end of the day, you know, my wife had a government job, a stable government job. She could go back to work. And after the sort of first year of me sort of struggling 
with some casual work here and some part-time work here and then getting a job and it closing and getting another one. I probably went through sort of four or five jobs mm-hmm. in that 12-month period of the first year of Rosanna's life. And then eventually it wasn't an easy thing to do, but eventually I stayed at home and was the primary carer for our daughter for between two and three. So tell us about this experience. Tell the listeners about that, what that experience was being a okay so i can tell you that it's 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 only privileged people could say this right but every father should try and have the chance to do that if they can (laughs) their young ones first couple of years if you can spend a couple of months or six months or a year i would highly recommend it because it totally under, you totally understand what parenting is rather than being at work and coming home and trying to help out with things or doing things on the weekend. Like it is tedious and it's boring and it's exciting, it's funny, it's fun, it's heartbreaking, it's everything. So there's one day where my little girl got really ill. You know, she was she had really bad diarrhea and I think I had changed sort of 20-odd nappies in a couple of hours and, and you know, the poor little thing, she was in a lot of pain, you know, and so after every change i just put her in a bath and try to get her soothed and then eventually it just got so hard to keep putting new clothes on her. we just cuddled in bed and i just held her in bed and she just held on to me and she just knew that i was going to be there and i thought to myself of all the things i've done over the years that i thought were a challenge or really important or vital this meeting or whatever there was absolutely nothing more important than that day that's the most important day I've done. Like it was just, you know, she absolutely required 100% focus and attention. And if there was a mistake or if I was lazy <laughs> or if I decided that there was another priority that needed to be focused on, she'd be in hospital or worse. So that was a, that was a, a very, very, very valuable lesson. And it's something that I'll never forget, to be honest. And what were some of the challenges or what were, did you have some things come up around how you were being perceived as being a stay-at-home dad? Or I, I think I remember you telling me about how you would go down to the kindy and there'd be other mums there and there'd be some... Oh, yeah, not the kindy. It'd be like at, at the local... The park. Yeah, the local yeah. park or the local coffee shop. You'd sort of go down there and there'd be, you know, heaps of mums with, you know, toddlers and they'd all talk and share stories about, you know, feeding or, you know, clothes or where they're going to go to kindy or whatever. And basically I'd go down there. Rosanna would play with the other kids, but I'd sit by myself. Mm. So there was a couple of times where a couple of the other mothers reached out, but very rarely. And I I remember the first time I took Rosanna to swimming lessons, the the swimming teacher sort of said to me, um, oh, you know, it's okay, you know, little one, you know, and she said, oh, well, you know, usually, oh, there's not too many people come here with their dads, mm. you know. Like, oh, it's a different world now, isn't it, <laughs> you know. And there was that kind of perception Yeah, because I think you always time. hear about these, oh, that dads get more attention if they take their kids to the park or the pool. It's like, oh, aren't they being a great dad? But your experience was the opposite of being actually vilified. Well, oh, yeah, I don't think that people would have thought, thought that, oh, you're not a bad, you're not a good dad or whatever. It's just that. Like, like, it, like, 
It was hard to be included, I guess. Included. Yeah. I guess that's probably what I was more like. I think there's this perception that the soul dad will be welcomed with open arms into the mother's group and all this. Yeah, you know, yeah. And that, and that wasn't your experience necessarily. No, not really. All the time. Not all so, the time. Sometimes, but yeah. not all the time. But, you know, it was, um, I remember I, I had a couple of other friends who had done a similar role and I remember I was talking to one friend of mine who spent um, a year or 18 months with, I think he had two kids at the go there at one point. I said, oh, how did you cope with that? He said, mate, it's like getting castrated except you still keep your <laughs> testicles, mate. You wait what it's like. It's just the most demasculizing thing. And and he sort of joked about it, laughed about it. He said, oh, yeah, like it's, you know, it's, it's really kind of a bizarre experience. But like the experience for me internally was great, but there definitely was a perception that, well, why aren't you at work? Yes. You know, why, you're the provider, you're the, and it's not just coming from, um, you know, strangers, it's coming from people close to you as well. Like that yeah. definitely, they may not say it, but you know they're thinking it. Of course, I don't, I don't really think that has changed much. I know that no. we talk about that, Chad, but, but overwhelmingly I think there is a still obviously the mother is in that full-time mothering role. So, yes, I still think there's a long way to go on that. Definitely. How did that change the way you perceived yourself in terms of the male identity? Is that something that you I really, had I to... really struggled with that. Yeah. Um, I really struggled with that. I always thought that I would be, um, you know, the, the the provider, the breadwinner, the, um, you know, the the guy that would, you know help help with all that that's what i would do and then so i struggled with it so a lot of that was just internally my my issue as well that sense of identity because you know it's just it was just such a shock to the system and you know so i'm struggling with mental health as well as 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 this massive change in in what role i was doing it was um a big struggle with my identity so can you tell me a bit about how you became aware of how you were feeling and how you recognised that you were in depression, I guess, because a, a lot of, particularly men, are detached so much from their feelings. They don't actually recognise that they're unhappy. So were, were there triggers or particular feelings that came up to you like, oh, there is definitely something not right and this is something that I need to... Well, they call it the black dog for a reason. And, you know, I never, I never really understood what that term meant until, you know, now. And basically what happens is it just creeps up on you. You don't really have... Like, there was a couple of circumstances in my life that, sure, were, were a big shock and a big change and a very stressful work breakdown. Um, you know, I went through a relationship breakdown before that, which was stressful, not, not long before that. Um, and so, you know, you think you're going to be okay. And then you think that if you just get a couple of wins, you'll be all right. But then when you don't get the wins and you get a couple more losses, then those losses aren't just little anymore. They just are exacerbated to adding to this big thing. So then when you apply for a job and you don't get it, then that becomes 
a much bigger deal than if you were if you were working and applied for a job and you didn't get the job it's like oh well geez i really wish i'd have got that but you go off and you do your thing and you don't really worry about it but when you're desperate yeah. and then you're applying for things and you're going in for an interview and you think okay this is it this is it this is it sorry you know then and then you know it, it becomes harder and harder the tension at home builds up and builds up and builds up it has a massive impact on on your relationship um so then every little thing becomes a big thing yeah and then the your ability to be able to deal with the little things gets less and less until you're at the stage where no matter what goes wrong it's a catastrophe yeah and then you're in a position where you need real help and while i was going to counseling the first couple of times i went to counseling they give you a form to fill out and they say oh you know rate what you're feeling from one to ten and all this sort of stuff and there was a question on there that said um uh, uh, suicidal thoughts right so how many how many suicidal thoughts did you have this week and you write write down a number and when i first went into count no one, t- no one told me what that meant right so I, I'd, I'd put down uh did i think i was going to kill myself this week eh, probably not so i put zero yeah and then the next time i went in i thought yeah there was a time this week where i thought i might do it so i put down one time and then that was in the early days of counselling when things were really bad, when I, when I was close to hospitalisation, I, I went and had a proper psychiatric assessment and the guy was really great. And he went through the questionnaire and he said, okay, so you rate to this between one to 10 and blah, blah, blah. And, and instead of just giving me the form, he went through the form and he filled it out. And then he said, oh, so, th- so suicidal thoughts you know, how many suicidal thoughts have you had this week? And I said, oh, you know, I didn't think I, um, I didn't think I, I, I didn't really think I'd try and kill myself this week. And he goes, oh, no, that's, that's not what that means. And I said, oh, wh- what do you mean? What does it, what does it mean? And he said, oh, it just means how often you think about it. And I said, oh, God. And he said, well, do you think about it daily? I said, oh, yeah. Well, well is it every day? Yeah, oh, it's, oh, definitely every day. I said, well, well, how many times a day? I said, oh, I don't know. And I said, oh, I think about it all the time. He said, oh. he said well, you know, we've really got to get some work done. Yeah. And, that, and the then, then he spoke to my wife and said, you know, your husband's really ill. Yeah. And like, I don't know if I had filled out that form earlier, maybe there would be more. But, you know, that, that was, it was on my mind all the time. And so that he would say, like, now this is what, this is, you might think about the impact that it have on your family. You might think, oh, what am I going to do with the money? What am I going to do with my, who am I going to give my things to? How would I do it? What are my parents going to say? Who's going to write something for my eulogy? Like, that stuff would consume my mind all day, all day. Every day, there would be hardly a moment that went by that period that I wasn't thinking about it. But so beforehand, I don't know whether I was guarding myself or guarding other people or whatever, but it probably could have been picked up a bit earlier. 
So what happened then in that situation where that psychiatrist actually took notice and, and asked you more questions? Because that's what it is about a lot of the time, right? Just asking more questions. Yeah, so, well, it's, really, it's a really strange thing because the first thing they do is they just, they, they go straight to medication. That's Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I never wanted to go down that track because, and maybe I should have, and I'm not saying it's the right or wrong thing. I don't want to give advice. I'm just saying what I did. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to get myself better and maybe I should have. Maybe I would have got better quicker. I don't know. But I didn't. I didn't do that. I refused it. What did you do? Um, probably a lot of the same. Um, so when I was out, when I was out, I don't, I didn't medicate. I didn't take prescription medication, but I probably medicated myself quite a lot. Yep. Um, and yeah, that became a way for me to escape and feel better and I always felt better for a little while and then the next day you feel like shit and so yeah it, it was a long time before I started getting you know counseling again and really so talking at that time things you didn't out have, you didn't take up at after that initial assessment you didn't go for counseling that took a while to come to that yeah yeah again yeah. I, I would just refuse to I don't want to let it win but at the same time it was winning yeah it was beating me. So what was the resistance to having talking therapy or talking to someone even after that? I don't know. I found counselling after a while for me, I found it counterintuitive because I just felt like every time I go into counselling, I, I came out feeling worse. So and, I, and, and so I just didn't want to feel worse, so I just stopped going. And then I kept going down lower and lower and lower. And my wife kept saying to me, I don't know what we're going to do. You know, what are we going to do? We've got to do something. We've got to do something. And I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And um, Yeah, the big turning point for me was, well, not that, um, you know, like I, I, I kind of had some time on my hands. I, I did a bit of work around the house and then I got a friend, like a, not a friend, I just found a handyman guy to come around and, fix up part of my deck and he said to me oh who's who does all your gardens <laughs> and I said oh I do you know I love I love working in the garden and he said oh mate I'm a handyman in this area I don't know how many people say to me I want someone to come around and do my gardens and I got to the stage where my little girl was now in daycare a couple of days a week so I needed to do something and and I really didn't feel as though I could go back into any kind of stressful yeah, environment. Any, like an office or training. Any kind of, I, I really didn't really want to be around people, um, which was is totally the opposite of me. So I just kind of wanted to be mainly in solitude or just around close friends. Yeah. And so um, he said, oh, look, you know, you could probably just get put a sign up in the local shops and do some garden work. And I said, yeah, okay, I might think about that. And I'd actually toyed with the idea of it a little bit beforehand. I thought, well, that might just get me out of the house, get me just doing something. So I, I did that. I went and put a little sign up at the shops and mowing and gardening. And but that the next day I had three people bring up. And so I thought, oh, shit. You know, <coughs> I borrowed my dad's trailer, just had the, you know, household car and went out and started mowing lawns and gardening. And at first I thought, this is just shit. <laughs> you know, this is really yeah. beneath me. And, you know, like, you know, like 
I was just saying to you before, I had a, I got a wardrobe full of suits and ties and shirts and nice shoes and they're all just sitting there and I'm just wearing crusty old shorts and a t-shirt and steel cut boots and out in the sweat and, and you know, mowing old ladies' yards for $30. And then, but it just got me doing something and I just kept going each day. Well, I just keep going, I just keep going, I just keep going. And then I'll tell you what, it was tough because I started in the worst drought that we've had in mm. eons and that that winter period like I was just driving around to dead grass and so then I thought well this is ridiculous you know I failed again you know and the catastrophe starts and I don't know what kept me going whether it was just you know pressure from you know all angles just to try and try and do something but and you know there was a lot of pressure for me to go get another job and just get out there and just do get back to what you're doing but I knew that I couldn't do that you could not go back absolutely no way and so (coughs) I just kept thinking well I'll just keep trying I'll just keep trying I'll just keep trying and then you know things just got better you know I started going from just filling up two days took a while to fill up two days then so okay, let's try for three days. And I remember coming home saying, oh, I, got, I made $400 this week. I was like, oh, okay, great. You know, like, <laughs> let, let, let's let's see if we can get some more. And then, you know, but that was a big milestone for me, in, in all yeah. honesty. And then, you know, then all of a sudden you're trying to build up to, you know, an extra day. And then eventually I started just getting good three solid days and then I went through a, a pretty good summer the next year and started to really build up a little client base. And I'm thinking, this could be a good little business. You know, like it's, I'm good with people. And I, and you know, I had a natural way of getting on a job. If I was quite a job, I always got it, you know, because, you know, I was personable and helpful and, you know, trying to do it. And then, so eventually now it's my full-time job. Like when I say it's my full-time job, it's my full-time what I make. My, make, money. Make, make money from and you know it's a great little business and it was really only probably eight or nine months ago that I was coming into my third winter and I had enough work to not be sort of full-time as such but like really good solid four days a week and you know making some some you know like a like a decent little wage and I was looking forward to the summer and I was just thinking to myself, dude, this is a pretty good job. Like it's 25 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. Every day is like this. Every morning I wake up, have a coffee, go and prune someone's rose garden. Yeah. You know? And I think as friends we've spoken about, like I, I remember when I was trying to get my business running, I went and um, worked for my brother at, and outside in the sun and he's a builder and I was doing, you know, carpet laying and nailing things and, and I, I just love the experience of being out, outside, outdoors, out Absolutely. in the office. Um, and I love gardens and, and plants too. But just, just can you talk about how that impacts actually, how that helps with mental health? Well, it impa- first helps. thing it does is it impacts physically. Physically, yeah. And I, that, I think this is a really big thing because then, so going through that winter period and thinking there are worse jobs. Mm. This is a good job. Like I'm my own boss, um, you know. I was at the stage where I really wasn't knocking back any jobs, but I could have if I wanted to. But I, was, I sort of pretty much took on everything that I got had the opportunity to do. Some jobs are not great, but that's the same as any job. But some most jobs were really fun, really enjoyable, and the physical aspect of it 
then starts to really come in. Where you're coming home from work and you're physically you're exhausted. <laughs> yeah. but, and, and, but mentally, you're mentally really, like you've had a good day. Yeah. You've been in the sun, it's green grass, it's green trees. You, you're learning about plants, you're learning about soil, you're learning about pests. Um, you're meeting some really great people. I've got really good customers, right? And then, you know, I, I, some, of the, some of the most enjoyable people that I work with are elderly. I've, I seem to really connect well with my elderly customers. And then they start to really rely on you, you know? And they start to ring you up and then you start to talk to their family. And they go, oh, everyone knows who Sean the gardener is because, you know, and then it's like, oh, like, you know, and then I've had other, you know, family members of, the, of elderly customers say, Look, Sean, I can't tell you how important it is for you to be here every fortnight for mum, you know, mm-hmm. or you're here every week. And mum knows that you're going to be here. And, and she always says, oh, Sean always helps me move stuff around the house or bring in some shopping or take stuff out of the car or whatever. And then I actually started to think to myself, this is really important what I'm doing. You know, like, and, and that, then the attitude started to change. So hang on a second, like this is a this is important. What I'm doing is important. These people need me to be here. They rely on me to be here every fortnight. And in a lot of cases, I'm one of their only visitors. Yeah. So that's a purpose, right? It's, it's a per- purpose total purpose. Too. And sometimes I think, okay, well, I'm gonna charge fifty dollars to do that yard. Hopefully I can be in and out in an hour and a half. But two hours later I'm sitting down with a cup of tea and a scone and having a chat about whatever it is. And you know. That the joy on their face of having someone there to visit and just talking and communicating and getting that back, you know, yeah. all of a sudden it's, well, I'm, I'm back networking, but it's in a totally different sphere. Yeah. And then I'm getting phone calls from someone like, oh, well, you look after Marge's house in the Gap. And she said, you know, you, you never fail to be there every fortnight. Can you come around and have a look at my back courtyard? And then... Life became purposeful. Um, I, I fully changed my attitude to it. Yeah. And then I actually, and then so I came into this summer in a really good position because, you know, it, like, so, so seasonally it, it rained quite a lot in the winter and then we had a good wet spring and I just knew that this summer was going to boom. And I tell you what, I've been so busy that I'm now turning away jobs and turning away work and, you know, coming home at night now, instead of thinking about all of these things that you ruminate on and you go over and over in your mind how bad things are and how bad things have been and how unlucky I've been and I wish this didn't happen and if that had happened, that wouldn't I wouldn't feel like this. So just coming home, making dinner, having a cold beer and a glass of wine with dinner and then just looking forward to going to bed and sleeping like a rock yeah that's you know, that would be that sounds like actually a dream yeah. I sleep very well. and then um i remember just looking at myself in the mirror at the lead up of the end of last year and said looked at myself hard for ages and it was a really bizarre experience because i don't know if you've ever really properly looked at yourself but it's a very very unbelievable thing to do Mm. and I just said to myself in the mirror I'm going to beat depression I'm going to beat it yeah and like I say have I beaten it no it's there but I'm going I'm going to give it a 
bloody good shot. Sounds like your gardening business was your therapy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was really interesting to talk to a guest on one of our other episodes who, you know, who was a Qantas pilot and lost a job through COVID and that positive attitude that she took to some of the jobs that she didn't want to do. That's what I've done. And um, so it has been a turning point. And then so once I started to feel good about that, then I started to look at other ways that I could turn things around. And that's when I started to look into meditation and, um, uh, you, you know, the proper, proper, properly starting to research out the, the balance of nature and mental health and physical activity and yeah. mental health. And, you know, I don't have a gym membership now. There's no way I need a gym membership. I'll I'll probably walk 20Ks a day without trying. And that's pushing machinery, you know. And so you're coming home, you don't don't have to... Go to the gym. Yeah, you don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to worry about that aspect of it. You're constantly exercising all day, constantly. And you got back into your music. Absolutely. That's that's another another big thing. And that was one of the things that I lost, (coughs) sorry, through the depression. I mean, I played in a lot of bands, which I still play a lot of music, but I also was heavily involved in music management and, um, you know, music publicity. And it got to the stage where, you know, I was having some good success with an artist that I managed, Sabrina Laurie. She put out a, an amazing record called Hush the Mountain, which I was absolutely proud to be involved in. And then when that album came out, you know, it was really, really critically acclaimed, but then it sort of, sort of struggled to get the momentum that I think it really deserved. And for me, even though it was a real success and something that anyone would say, that is an incredible record. It got, a, you know, four and a half star rating on Rolling Stone and all that sort of stuff. You think 10 years ago, I would have flown off that and driven, 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 driven hard. But as soon as that little bit of success petered off, I thought, well, here we go again, more failure. I can't have more failure. I can't have it. And um, so I kind of let it go in a way. And then, um, you know, again, so there was another piece of my identity gone. A big part of what I did was I was a music manager, an artist manager. And then all of a sudden I don't have that. And that was a real struggle. And then... Um, you know, Sabrina reached out to me, you know, uh, probably eight or nine months ago to start to do some work again, you know, because we we just had a good break, actually, from each other. That was great. This was a lot hard eight years before that. And then I've come back into it now for absolute vigour because I feel good. and and But at the same time, I'm not just this overly optimistic guy now like i'm a bit more leveled out i know that there's going to be challenges and we start to i can start to think about that whereas beforehand i just thought that everything was going everything i touched was going to turn to gold black and white yeah 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 and so that's been very healing for me as well music has been a massive part of my life for for since i was in my early teens um i still play a lot of music the guys that i play in bands with um, have been some of the most supportive people, the most the best listeners, as well as my close friends that I grew up with in my neighbourhood have been really, really great. But, um, you know, getting back into that has given me a sense of purpose. And then 
what that has done then is then all of a sudden you start to look at how your life links up and how things can be really positive. So you think, well, I couldn't really throw myself back into music management with the vigor that I wanted if I was working in some corporate job. Mm. But doing what I'm doing with a gardening business, I can take a call anytime. I can stop and send an email. I can schedule my day if I need to make a meeting. I can listen to music all day. So if I want to listen to new music or if I want to be listening to ideas or if I want to be listening to demos that my artist is sending me, if I want to be just you know, getting inspired, I listen to music all day or I can listen to a podcast on music and, and but just be thinking about that all the time while I'm going about my work. And then so all of a sudden then the light bulb clicks. Things can be really great if you just look at things from a different approach. An approach. And I think that's a good way to finish up. I, I really want to thank you for being so open and and honest today. Let's be, yeah, thanks, you've ripped your heart out. Thank you. I would like to finish with, so what do you value most now? Going through the significant life changes, what would you say are your core values now? I would say close friends and family are the most important thing to me. I would say that what I value now is, is not what people do for a work or, or their occupation or um, what, what it looks like from the outside. What is really important is what, how people are. And that's, that's, that's when I look at the, how lucky I am to have some of the people around that I have is that some of them are real corporate high flyers and some of them aren't, but it doesn't matter. Like some, the, the people that, that I love having around are people that are genuine, people that are honest, people that are willing to listen and people that won't judge. And they're the things that I really value. And um, I think being healthy is much better than being rich. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sean, for today. Thanks, Mel. And yeah, we've finished up another episode of The Balanced Brain. And um, we've got the hardest parts out of both of our stories. Yes. And we, that's created a platform for people to share. And we've had our first interview. So um, please, we hope you join us for our other episodes coming up. And um, hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, Mel. Bye. Bye.